Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Got Work to Do podcast, winter term edition. My name is Brandi Douglas. And today uh, we have Dr. Mahui Whitebear, Assistant Director of the Native American Longhouse Inahaz, and Dr. Adam Schwartz, Associate Professor of Language, Culture, and Society with me today. And we are going to have a wonderful conversation about the connection between race and language. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to give my esteemed guests a chance to introduce themselves better than I could, and we will start with Adam. Okay, uh, well, thanks. Hi, I'm Adam. Uh, I use uh, he, him uh, pronouns, and yes, you are correct, Brandy. I am the, uh, I am an associate professor in, uh, in the School of Language, Culture, and Society. My home base um, is in world languages, and uh, and Spanish applied linguistics, to be specific. Um, but I study language uh, and culture a bit more broadly than that. And so I have the pleasure and the privilege of being able to teach in anthropology once a year, at least once a year, linguistic anthropology. Um, and from time to time, teach a course that's cross-listed over in ethnic studies. So I really spend a lot of time in my school of language, culture, and society. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll stop there for now. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Adam. And next we have Lahui. Haku, everyone. Um, my name is Lahui Whitebear. I use she, her pronouns. I'm enrolled with the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation. And like Brandy said, I and the assistant director over at the Native American Longhouse Ina House, which is one of the seven cultural resource centers on campus. Um, it's a great place to be with students and work in community and help build and maintain community on campus. Um, I also have the privilege to teach here and there for ethnic studies, women, gender, and sexuality studies, and queer studies. Um, and I'm also OSU alumni from those programs as well. So. <laughs> That's another connection with OSU, um, and I'm just really excited to be here. I'm glad both of you accepted my invitation. It's uh, one thing, the reason why I wanted to bring two together is because of your work within linguistics and um, in language and race, but also because you're good friends. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about that connection between race and language, because it's a broad topic. and. Uh, Adam and both of you are slowly kind of going into this, but how would you describe the connection within the parameters of your scholarly work? I'll start with Lahui. Yeah, um, so there's a couple of things I work on with uh, my scholarship, and I guess I should have said that too. I just finished my PhD last spring, so um, newly completed PhD um, in women, gender, and sexuality studies here at OSU, and my um, concentration area was in gender rhetoric and representation. So looking at the stories that are told um, from that lens, a lot of my research focused on indigenous activism and specifically on counter-colonial intergenerational storytelling to help recenter the voices of indigenous women to spirit and indigenous queer folk within activism. Um, and I looked a little bit at boarding school writings as well with that. And looking at the um, messages that are sent in current times to indigenous communities, like in cities. Some of my work centered um, from where my people are from and where I'm originally from, Santa Barbara, California, and looking at the messages that are sent through um, 
museums and access to place and space um, from an unrecognized tribe's perspective, tribal members' perspective. I don't speak on behalf of my tribe. I have to make that clear. <laughs> um, but I think that with my writing, a lot of what I focus on is the language of policy as well and the way that policies are written and impact indigenous communities and really specifically around gendered violence um, and with the murdered and missing indigenous women's um, movement on how federal and local um, law and policy impact our communities and the kind of story it tells about who we are and that we're pretty much um, disposable and just objects through these policies. And it's really, um, from that standpoint, the way that I look at language is um, it's really hard to actually to write sometimes, but it's, I feel like really necessary to write about as well. So folk can understand how that, um, that these decisions and the words that are used, the way that policies are written impact our everyday lives and experiences and our ability even to be seen as worthy of life in a lot of instances. And so I think there's like a combination of all those things come back to that main focus of like, how do we counter this settler narrative that has been created for indigenous people that impacts our very lives, our identities as indigenous people um, that I can go into a whole long ramble about that part, but <laughs> um, I'll keep it short and say, there's a lot that goes into the way that language is used and how it's used as a tool of erasure and how it justifies continued genocide of our people, both culturally and literally. Yeah, it's not just a, um, whim it's not whimsical, it's not, there's some, there's some heavy thoughts, there's some yeah. um, purpose, uh, in, insidious purpose behind, behind the language used. Yeah. Adam, what about you? How would you um, connect yeah, the parameters of your scholarly work into this. Yeah, you know, uh, my, my focus is on Spanish language education and, and perhaps surprisingly to some, there's considerable overlap with some of the frames um, and perspectives that, that, that Lou brings to her work that can pretty easily be applied to Spanish language education as a colonial example. Um, as an as a institution that is really predicated on settler colonialism. Um, so Spanish, as I think we all know, is a colonial language, just like English. Um, and it is also a site um, for a, a lot of critical conversation um, around identity, around you know, uh, national identity, around racialized identity, around um, class-based identity, gendered identity um, in the United States. Um, and, and yet at the same time, it's, Spanish is, is, remains and persists as one of the most popular, if not the most popular um, language um, that is either chosen or sometimes forced upon students to study in the United States. Um, both among um, speakers for whom that language is, is a heritage language and, and for folks like me that, that, um, that elected to, to, to take the language, quote unquote, um, as, a, as, as subject matter um, in school. And I, I'm really interested in understanding Spanish language education as an institution 
uh, and an institution that is defined by and that informs uh, the ways of whiteness uh, in society. Um, you know, for example, um, Spanish language education, uh, you know, isn't necessarily uh, um, an effort to promote um, kind of a harmonious bilingualism in society um, between English and Spanish or Spanish and, uh, and, and other languages um, that are languages spoken at home or in students' communities or uh, between generations uh, uh, in the student's life. Um, Spanish language education um, oftentimes really helps to elevate English monolingualism in society and English dominance in society. And so what I find is, especially for white students, um, Spanish language education, and I'm not alone in, in making, this, uh, making this distinction. Um, I need to, um, to credit the, so many of those um, that are my own mentors and, and, um, and have done this work uh, for some time, um, that um, Spanish language education is, uh, th does a marvelous job at, at, at protecting uh, whiteness and, and, and elevating, as I said, white monolingualism, and in the process, really rewarding white students for relatively low expectations in terms of language proficiency, whereas for Latinx students or students for whom Spanish is, um, uh, is, a, is a family heritage, is a community heritage, um, that power dynamic is reversed. So the expectations for language proficiency um, are unreasonably high, um, and uh, and 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 the rewards tend to be quite low. Um, so you know, it's this idea that well, you know, if you you come from a Spanish speaking family or community, well, you should be speaking Spanish anyway. So um, whereas that sort of expectation is never placed upon um, you know white uh, you know, English speaking students or students who are assumed to be quote unquote natively English speaking. Um, so I look at, at how those sorts of policies, those sorts of policies that are happening within schools, within educational institutions are always reflective of dominant policies um, uh, in, in society, um, their ideological orientations to the ways in which certain folks get to be educated or certain folks get, get to have uh, have, have their languages as, as validated or not uh, in, in what ways. So, um, so again, to, to, to tie this back to what Lou was saying, um, uh, you know, it's, these sorts of policies are cut from the same cloth. Uh, yeah. This is how um, this colonial experiment uh, gets reinscribed over and over and over again and, and very much normalized. Yeah, is it, it when I'm listening to both of you, um, is an erasure piece that comes with, with the with race and language, which is not something I would I would specifically hone in on first. Like my first instinct to hone in on is something we'll get to later, which is how how race how excuse me how language is is used to to um, oppress. But I guess erasure is a part of oppression. Um, it's a big part of it. From what I'm hearing from both of you, when it comes to the erasure of a culture, the erasure. Um, uh, of a of a language of a of a of a way of life, and for for both of the communities that specifically we're talking about, how 
how to reclaim that, how to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Huh, word I'm looking for as we're talking about language. Um, way to highlight the enlighten to open doors around these are the these are the ways that policies have been written how um, education has been done um, to erase um, race and culture which leads me to a point literally that you had made earlier about storytelling I, I've read a little bit of what you, your scholarly work and so storytelling really connected uh, huge with me as somebody who utilizes it for dialogue um, as you both know and so I'm I wanted to talk more about the bond that is created from storytelling um, and how you, either you use storytelling in your work or how can storytelling create a sense of belonging within the communities that you all are a part of um, and within your work at OSU. Um, I want to start with Adam because I want to hear more about the storytelling piece and because um, I know Lahui does it or as a part of her scholarly work. So I want to hear more about how storytelling plays a role in your scholarly or in your personal communities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, I was thinking about that and I was thinking how, um, you know, the short answer is yes. It, storytelling is just absolutely fundamental to the work that I do, both in terms of the research, but also in terms of teaching. I think I teach in order to, um, facilitate storytelling uh, in order to encourage students to, um, to, to, to tell their stories in ways that, that, that validate those stories as worthy of being heard in academic spaces. I think that is the first hurdle for so many of my students that, that storytelling isn't data that storytelling doesn't count as theory, that storytelling doesn't count as, as knowledge or wisdom. Um, and yet it's there. I mean, my students have stories that are ready to be told. Um, and those are the starting points by which to understand how we do society, how we do identity, how we do language. Um, and, and so, we can't really engage in conversations about, I, I, I don't think, about power and about identity and about language ideologies, for instance, and that's a, another term maybe to unpack at a later moment, until we, we kind of go deep within ourselves. Um, and, 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 and maybe it's not even going that deep, but just sort of naming a relationship that you have with an important human being in your life or retelling a story from an elder or talking about what counts as home to you um, or talking about what sort of languages you see in your daily life or languages you hear in your daily life or languages you read in your daily life. Um, more recently, I've been using a lot of um, uh, autoethnography in my courses. Um, and I attach this idea of autoethnography as a type of autobiographical writing, but one that really names um, social processes and power relations yeah. uh, and weaves those processes and power relations into one's own story um, that those sorts of theories are just as good as, uh, as, as what you have to share and teach. Um, on top of that, I add the, um, you know, the element of, 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 of a critical lens and also a linguistic lens. So I do a lot of work around critical uh, linguistic autoethnography, 
both with my students, and I've been doing a lot of that for myself as I write a, a book. That involves me kind of doing the work that I'm asking my students to do, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, and, and that's involved, I think, over the past year plus, um, really de digging deeply into my own family's history with uh, bilingualism um, and a relationship between English and Yiddish that mm -hmm. is actually very much situated in Los Angeles. Um, and then prior to that, Montreal. Um, and so it's very place-based and involves um, recovering stories mm. and storytelling that has been suppressed. Um, recovering and undoing some of the erasure um, that was a product of assimilation uh, a few generations ago. Um, and that comes with a lot of trauma. It comes with right. a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's, I have to engage in really hard conversations with, with like my father, for instance. Um, you know, these are stories that, that, that we're not keen to tell. Um, so what I've also had to do is like, I've gone through archives. I've gone yeah. through, um, you know, records that I, I, we didn't know that we had that thanks to things like ancestry.com. Like, I mean, just, you know, like, oh, wow, this is, this is a naturalization certificate. And I didn't actually know that was, that was my, you know, my, my great uncle's real name. That was, you know, like he, he took a more anglicized name, you know, things like this, you know? And right. so where it's like, oh my gosh, like, let me sit down for this one. And so again, if I'm asking my students to engage in this sort of this work, um, in order to do the work myself, um, I, I, I have to I have to figure out what sort of story um, the story was had been told to, uh, to me for some time, and how am I going to start retelling that story yeah. in ways that that push back against these these processes of erasure? Um, yeah. That's amazing. And I, I didn't realize you were doing that specifically for your book. And it's got to bring yeah. up a lot of, of moments for sure. I'm thinking about the moments that I've had to uh, specifically traverse ancestry.com to find the stories of, of uh, my ancestors um, and still working through that and the erasure piece of not knowing their names prior to slavery and then being a property number and yeah. So I can go on and on about that, but I want to hear oh, from yeah. Louis. Please. Um, specifically about your journey with storytelling. Yeah, um, well, just to add on to what you all are saying about those family stories that are like documented on sites and stuff like that is like, it's always interesting because somebody decides to put that information in there, yes. right? Yes. And sometimes it's not accurate. And oh, I've seen right. some of the stuff about my family not accurate in there. and. Like compare it with other like records and and you can see like what's going on there and I find it really fascinating and so I think like there's a couple of different things that I could say about that but um just being able to do that kind of like digging into those stories of families and following whenever I look at family records or even like the mission records and stuff like that I always like imagine like what was going on in a lot of like following the, like, I call it like following the um, path of your ancestors, right, and finding those pieces and those missing gaps, and um, 
it's interesting when you see stuff reflected in the way that colonization works in your family records, right? And mm. so like, okay, this is exactly like, you can see the tools in real life in your family of colonization of what was going on yes. in the way that it's gendered and yes. stuff. And so for me, that's something I'm going to work on later on, um, a project that I'm doing some research on personally on um, and going to work on a little bit later, but not right now because I'm working on other things. <laughs> Um, but what I will say is that um, uh, for me I, I think of stories as everything because that's all that <laughs> yeah. I think, right? and, like, the, um, the scholar Thomas King says um, stories are all we are it's like we're all made up of stories and one of my favorite quotes of Malia Powell's um, is a, it's a this is not a direct quote because I don't have it right in front of me but it, it, the premise is that stories are um, that they're powerful and they have the power to and make remake and make worlds and so I think about that when I'm doing research a lot about like who's telling the story from what lens and um that power that it does it can make and make your entire world and recreate something else for you and I think of um all the stories we tell ourselves as institutions and as societies of who we are and how those stories are different compared when you compare stories with other folk and um I think of like with the class I'm teaching right now, I'm teaching feminist decolonizing methodologies um, in or decolonizing research methodologies. I forgot one of the words, really long course title. But, um, <laughs> likes to have really long names. <laughs> with yeah, there's always hyphen or not hyphens, the colon, the colon and the rest of the name. Right, the rest of the name. My dissertation's like that too, so I get it. Because um, you're like, wait, I need to say this too. But anyhow, um, we were talking about um, stories too, and in that one, because we're reading Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer, and how she's bringing in um, her people's origin story and comparing it with other origin stories and thinking about, like, as a botanist, what that means to her to, like, carry those stories with her, as well as, like, the, um, the scientific research and how they're both scientific research, but they're from different frameworks. And they have different origin stories of how those frameworks work. And so to me, stories are super powerful. And um, and I feel like sometimes something that academia kind of shies away from and conditions us to not to think of, like Adam was saying, as theory and as ways as methodologies and all the big words we like to use. So basically, like how we, how we explain how the world works. And really, it is all stories, too. And um, that comes with my counter-colonial um, style is that those are just stories too the ones that are the dominant ones and they're the ones that we uphold because they've been either published or they've been documented in a way that um, is from a dominant framework so if you think about all the records and stories and some of the um, stuff I was learning about and reading about with indigenous rhetorics is like thinking about all the records all the stories that have been documented by indigenous peoples in North America that aren't like in a um, textbook in English and so they're not viewed as the same kind of records are not viewed as having the same legitimacy totally. and, yeah and to me it's really frustrating because until you have that legitimacy of like a western lens it's not viewed as valid or legitimate and so it's then you see that all the time with science too like I, when I was growing up I my first teachers my mom always reminds me were trees and learning how to count with pine nets and from the stars and all these things that were like earth-based and um, indigenous science-based in um, 
and from my aunties and my mom and grandmas in the community I grew up it was out in the middle of nowhere in Southern California in the mountains for folk who don't know my story but um, it was not at a public k-12 and when I went to the public k-12 they didn't understand why I kept saying like things were had life and like rocks and water and stuff like that and so that was a clash of those stories of how where things came from and like how the world operates around us and so they were like this clash of paradigms basically right. and um I was always a pretty outspoken child and then um in pretty much how I am now I was when I was a kid too quiet but we'll say things when they need to be said and um would say stuff to teachers and my mom has a lot of memories of like getting call or not calls because we didn't have a phone but like when she would pick us up hey we need to talk to you about this thing that Lou was saying and whether it was about um, indigenous histories or things like that that had to do with these stories that I knew compared with the stories they were telling me in school and so um, it got interesting and so then like years later there's all these um, these research projects that show like water responds to like emotions and to um, sounds and all these other things how trees talk to each other through networks and all these things that come out right and you see that mm-hmm. even wildfires with the climate crisis that we're like facing and they're like oh I guess like all these things native people were saying now we've proven they're actually working it's now we've proven right and it's not the stories that were there for thousands of years to help us understand and so to me storytelling again is everything and it helps us connect to the world around us and to each other Um, when we share those stories with each other I think it helps us remind each other that we do have some commonalities but we also have a lot of differences um, in our lives and our experiences and but there is that core piece of somehow those stories impacted our lives and told us how to live in this world and so that's how I like use storytelling especially with my work on campus we share a lot like we sit around the table at well not right now but (laughs) when it's not the pandemic we sit around the table in the front room of the NAL Ina house and it's just storytelling all day people telling stories about their day about their classes processing their experiences with microaggressions reflecting back to home talking about food and there's all these connecting pieces and that's really I feel like what helps keep us connected as communities and then you're faced with like structurally like stories aren't valid and stories aren't important you need to prove something and we need these things and so and now we like to use like stories as also as like part of our assessments too so yes I was just thinking that I was like and we like to almost uh, weaponize them in a, in a sense for whatever purpose that is maybe not the purpose that the story was meant for right. um yeah uh, it's very interesting I thought of um the impact of all stories right I think sometimes we just think about the impact of uh a story that is meant to oppress us instead of seeing that both all stories are impactful in in some way and have uh, shaped how we move through the world. Um, and at a university where, I've, you know, I, I go back and forth on how universities use stories, specifically stories of marginalized communities um, for recruitment, um, but not for retention. That's another story for another day, but I, I do think it connects to the next question I have, which is around the impact of racist language. Um, and the stories that our students tell us about how that has impacted them, 
for stories that our colleagues of color um, have said that impacted them, but not a way that which the university has worked to, 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 I say combat, but that's not really the right word, which is why I put it in quotation marks for y'all because I'm not really sure of the correct, not correct, the best um, word there, but um, is it even possible? Is, story, is storytelling a way to, to, to push up against uh, racist language in our, in our university communities? Is there something else that, should we be rewriting policies in, in a way that, that, um, that neutralizes racist language? What are your thoughts about that? I don't mind whoever goes first. Go for it, Lou. <laughs> I was like, Adam wasn't muted. That's why I didn't say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so the way that we can rewrite policy with um, to address racist language is that what you? Yeah. Yeah, and I was, I was thinking too, like, really quickly while Adam was talking about like the role of Spanish and English and that kind of stuff. And I think about my ancestors a lot with that complexity. And I have like a, a very interesting relationship with both of those languages because most of my people's indigenous languages were erased by Spanish and then English. And so like there's a layer of linguistic erasure that happens there too. And that reclamation that comes back with like using our names for places, our greetings, like I did earlier, our names, like how my name is and my kids' names and stuff like that and other families' names and stuff. And so I think about the power of that too, but um, to rename things. And I think about that too on campus, how um, I was always fascinated when we got the sign for the center, the new sign. And I was like, wow, that's a really long name. And why does it say house twice? And um, it's in English and in Chinookwawa. And it was always like interesting to me to think of like the politics of naming buildings too and like who gets to be named and like what languages buildings are named in and stuff like that and um to me i was like is it because they really wanted it to be in a house but it was in chinookwawa and at that time there was no buildings that were not in english and so it was kind of an interesting dynamic there with the name um but with policy, like I said earlier, like policy shapes everything and we know that. And so thinking about how can we address um, racism on campuses through policy, that's a big question, Brandy. I know. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to, how to answer this, but I do think like it's important um, to think about who's impacted. And a lot of times policy is written from like trying to be universal when our experiences are not universal. And I think about some of the feedback I've given on institutional policies. I'm like, hey, you know, that's not gonna land well with indigenous students because of cultural practices and ceremonial practices. I'm thinking about the tobacco policy in particular. When I know that it's talking about smoking on campus, but there's another use of tobacco that ends up getting wrapped up into that policy. And so offering feedback on like, here's some, some language you might want to put in here. Here's the federal law that protects students for their um, religious freedom and stuff. And so here's some thoughts on some things, some of which did make it and some of which didn't. And um, so I think about that, like how when we write policies, we may be trying to use this universal language when it's yeah. impossible to have a universal language, really. I don't know if that answers your question. I almost no, like <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it gets to a good point around um, around the specificity of, of policy. Like I think I agree with that with that piece around universal language and what is actually universal language anyway when we think about it. But um, when it's really just more than likely catering to whatever dominant culture is yeah. a university is is wanting to portray. Um, so yeah, I, I do believe yes, you answered the question to okay. get back to the point. Um, Adam, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I. Gosh, there's so many different ways of taking this um, prompt, if you will, or uh, question. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't know. At least one one takeaway I think that students have from some of the classes that I teach, and their time uh, with each other in our learning communities is that language really matters, um, and listening matters too. So I think that's another thing that that. Um, that many of us are not, we haven't, we haven't sort of received that in our education to learn listening as a literacy skill, as a way of doing the world um, and engaging with language through reception as opposed to production. Um, and that proficiency, you know, proficiency in language acquisition, language education is always measured by production. Right. Um, there's listening skills, right? But I guess we're really talking about like really taking language in, really existing um, with a story, like taking in a story. And we're going back to stories now. Um, receiving, being in receipt of a story as being in receipt of someone's lived experience. Um, and that means really paying attention to the impact of violence and racism as violence um, on the world and on, and on other human beings. And that's what I think institutions really have trouble with. Um, is that institutions don't have time to listen <laughs> in the same ways that I think right. um, that, that maybe human beings have the potential one-on-one -on -one, um, or in, in, in collectives to really take time to listen and listen and, and to lean into listening as wisdom. And so, I think about how um, I, I'm really asking my students, I think, and I ask myself every day to be a language listener, to be a, you know, I'm, some of my colleagues will say a critical consumer of language um, where, you know, you ask, okay, who's, who's creating this language? Um, who's, uh, who is, you know, there's, there's, you know, the, the intent and the impact, right? Like who, for, for whom is this language intended? And then, you know, like Lou was saying, well, who's going to be on the receiving end in ways that maybe the, the person who was intending for this language to go out um, would not have been rec in, in recognition of this sort of impact, this damaging impact um, or impact that, that may be um, unintentionally um, erased some, a, a part of someone's identity or someone's history. Um, and so I, th I think I, I, I really, I, I hope that in my work, uh, my writing, um, that it, it, you know, in, in my teaching, that this is an invitation for all of us to, to listen better um, in ways that, um, that really honor, you know, struggles and, 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 and institutional violence and, and policies as institutional violence. 
um, in ways that maybe that many of us are not accustomed to seeing. Can I add something in real quick too? Oh, yeah. That I was thinking about um, as Adam was talking to. Um, for folks that don't know, I also serve on our local school board. And I was thinking about the differences in, um, in anti-racist policy work being done in the state and even locally and how mm. sometimes that cannot be replicated in higher ed. And so I'm always like, why isn't this policy, why is this only for K-12? It makes so much sense. And I think <laughs> about like the Kate one and like the All Students Belong one that just got passed for K-12. And I'm like, but we can't implement that in higher ed. And it's interesting to think of how, when it comes to a, an institution in a place where people pay, that sometimes those policies are not as present. Mm -hmm. Whereas like in K-12, because kids are still minors and people are adults and then they're like, well, freedom of speech, but I was like, minors still have freedom of speech and stuff too. But um, it's very interesting to see that dynamic from that lens now, because I, didn't notice it before until I've been involved. So like depending on the setting and depending on which type of institution we're talking about, different things are happening. And then it gets interesting, especially thinking of as kids are coming through like the schools into higher ed that are from in the state and they may wonder like, why don't, why can't we have something like this in higher ed too, where things like swastikas and nooses and stuff are banned and Confederate flags, but they're not now that I'm in college. And that's an interesting mixed message that gets sent in both our state institutions, right? Like public K-12 and a public higher ed institution, but like how people get here is different. And so I think that's just an interesting thing that I've noticed lately. That's, a, that's an interesting. I didn't even think about that. Um, I went and I didn't know that that last piece had passed, but that's true, like we, we do, we do see K through 12 very differently than higher ed. And I like the point you named about uh, young people do have freedom of speech too. <laughs> they do have those rights. Um, and why isn't that, why, why aren't those policies, at least even in some form, being uh, be able to be translated to higher education? Um, which leads to the last question I have, which is a question I have asked every single person mm. this year during the podcast is about anti-racism. It is a new term the university is figuring out, speaking of language. Um, and so I've asked everyone who's, who's joined me on the podcast, what does an anti-racist institution look like and how in your work uh, would you help create an anti-racist institution? This is always the stuff I'm doing. <laughs> I know, I'm like, me and Adam are having virtual stare down again. <laughs> right, I'm just like, what are you I'm just looking at my notes. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Adam. Okay, okay. Um, I've learned a lot, uh, I think, in terms, relative to this question, and from both of you in particular, um, about what anti-racism can look like. Um, what it should look like, what is the potential of looking like. Um, you know, on one hand, I think, oh gosh, I'm not, I'm not sure that institutions that are designed to be racist institutions get to, you know, get to like flip the switch. Like, you know, like you, it wasn't, it wasn't, that switch was never there, right? <laughs> um, 
but people, human beings, you know, human beings are the ones that, that make up institutions. Human beings are the ones that, that, that speak on behalf of communities, that come from communities, that, 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 that practice culture, that, that, that do identity. Um, you know, human beings, that's, I mean, we're talking about human beings. We're talking about family. We're talking about kin. We're talking about, you know, all that stuff. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's another conversation. But I worry about the ways in which we tend to, re, re, we, we tend to relate to institutions as people, mm-hmm. especially institutions of higher education. Um, and it's conflicting because like we have an affinity toward some of these institutions for really good reason. Like I think about my, my, my undergraduate institution and how like I, I feel an affinity for that institution because of a time and a place where I grew up and I have, I hold particular memories. And so you want, you want to believe that that institution is, you know, can be anti-racist, but it's the work of people within that institution um, that of course, you know, tend to go unseen um, that, that, that might make an institution anti-racist is, is such a thing as possible. I'm thinking about the ways in which um, my own program in Spanish is doing some deep reconciling um, in ways that I don't think anybody would have thought possible five years ago mm. about how and where we can start as educators and as human beings um, to think about just the very connection between language education and racism or language education and white supremacy. I mean, just entertaining the connection, um, that's a step, that's a step. And so um, do, do folks have different definitions about what counts as anti-racism or not? Have folks read, you know, uh, you know, folks like, you know, Ibram Kendi, for instance? Maybe, maybe not. But the idea that there are steps to begin to listen to each other differently, to mm-hmm. tell stories in new ways, uh, to hear those stories. Um, that's, I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud to be a part of a, a group of people who are making that attempt. And in many ways, listening to the demands of our students in order to do so. Um, now, does the institution, at what level of the institution does that begin to get seen or validated or advertised as anti-racism? That's another conversation. Right. Um, and that's also how power works too, is when the institution yeah. can turn around and say, hey, look what, look at what our language educators are doing. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we didn't do this because you were asking for it. <laughs> we were doing right. this because of other reasons that kind of really came from within and were influenced by our own networks and our own families and our own students, right? So I could go on and on. I think about that disjuncture and some of the my own experiences with that disjuncture and what I've learned from those experiences. But the, the, the long and the short of it too is that I'm, I'm really indebted to many of my students for calling out certain things, uh, institutional uh, shortcomings um, and really demanding more and demanding better. Yeah. Yeah. 
What do you have? What do you have, Dad? Um, yeah, that's a, a, this is a big topic, and um, one of the things I always share in my board work is about anti-racism. If you're going to make that commitment, it's a commitment to action, and we have to stay focused on that being an action word. It's not like a passive word. It's not a noun. It's a, actually it's an action word that is intended to like disrupt racism and address it. And so if we're making that commitment as an institution, um, I also like what Adam said. I say that a lot too. I'm like, the institution's not a person. Right. <laughs> it's a set of buildings and policies and like there's people behind all of it. And so like um, really humanizing who we can talk to about these things, I think is really important. It's easy to be like the institution as a being when it's, really not a bean. So anyways, we can get into that too. But I think that the anti-racist part is that that action piece and like, what are we actively doing? It's not like, where can we look and what, um, how can we use these examples? Like Adam was saying, like an example of a department doing this work, like what is the high level institutional commitment? Like what is being done in those um, spots to help address racism on campus? And um, I think sometimes there's the risk aversion too of like, if people are going to say, well, there's special programs for people that very racialized special programs kind of rhetoric around, like if there's programs designed for folk of color or very specific communities, um, we've seen institutionally across the nation, like scholarships get taken out because of um, that kind of rhetoric and how we're supposed to be for all students. So how do we have these special things where they're not really special and like, especially as a land grant institution, like thinking there are some responsibilities for specifically for indigenous communities that come with that, that were displaced and um, robbed of land to create the place in the first place. Right. And then the legal responsibilities with treaties and stuff like that as a state institution, like where were those pieces um, and I think that sometimes we forget about all those complex relationships that we have with certain communities, like um, that there is responsibilities as well to certain communities um, in addressing this. I'd like to look at anti-racism too, as not just like this thing that has to be done, but like as part of healing work too. So like, where are the entry points for healing? Like how do we start to heal those relationships? So like knowing that people were dispossessed of land and um, in life basically too, as well, like to create the institution, like how do we start mending those relationships and knowing Oregon's super, super white supremacist history, like how do we begin to heal those relationships with, with our black communities members too? Like how do we start those healing pieces through anti-racist work? And it's acknowledging it first, right? Like, I think there's a lot of acknowledging happening, but there's not like the next steps. It's like, we did this, but now what? Like, literally, what are you gonna do to help mend those relationships and help heal? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we need to go actually, is like, I'm all about community-based, <clears throat> excuse me, community-based work and community healing is a big thing. And I'm, I'm really big on that. Yeah, I agree. I There has been a lot of acknowledgement and rec recognition of, of uh of those pieces and yeah the next step is is that action piece and i i have i wonder if storytelling 
to be a part of that in a way that makes sense, right? Not a way that exploits, which is something we kind of didn't get into, but kind of did <laughs> about how stories, how stories specifically for marginalized communities can be used, utilized to exploit. Um, that's that's going to be an interesting piece uh, to see if, and you know, Adam, you're talking about the who is the institution. I agree that it is human beings. Uh, and at, at the power level, we know where it gets validated a little bit more than the levels that the three of us are at, right? And so how do you, my, the work, uh, sometimes with my work and my colleagues and OID is, is getting our, our uh, administration to, to put some skin in the game, for lack of a better term, mm. um, and sharing their own stories because they are just uh, as impactful as the stories that we all tell. Um, I wouldn't say more so, but they are impactful. We don't get to hear that. We get to hear from our students, get to hear from our colleagues of color, get to hear from our colleagues and students in marginalized communities, but we do not get to hear the vulnerable stories from folks who are in administration. And I would wonder what that would look like. Yeah. Uh, and what would that push the anti-racist piece for it? I don't know, but it would definitely humanize the institution more. Um, and so I think I've said that in multiple podcasts now, <laughs> episodes. And so maybe one day they'll listen to it. But until then, oh, no, go ahead. Because like what you're saying too, like in the exploitation part too of student stories is like one of my um, pet peeves too, because it's like, when, at what point do you listen to like people that are like, hey, this is going to cause harm. And then all of a sudden right. you have to tell these stories and That's it's right. like relive traumas and get harmed and be like, okay, a student's been harmed and now they're saying something. And like, I'm very pro like students um, using the power of their voice and stuff like that, but it shouldn't come at such high cost to create change when we know change needs to happen, like just change it. Like, I think that's part of being an anti-racist institution too, is like, you know, this isn't, this isn't set up well and it's not cool. Why are you waiting for students to be harmed before mm -hmm. making changes? And so that's one of the things that frustrates me the most is when we use those stories and have students like the tell me your trauma stories. Yeah. Yeah. A generation pieces of that too. It's not like, you know, these students that we have connected with over the years aren't the first and we mm -hmm. have documentation. We have, we have records of that, right. Of those same stories, maybe in different uh, contexts, but same stories being told to, um, to this university and to other universities too, but yeah. um, actually, some yeah. of them are literally the same stories. Like, yeah, they are. I was doing some center research history on, um, like the. It's really fascinating to read the old Barrow articles and see the shift from 1968 to 1969 uh, and how mm. of color are talked about in the yeah. Barrow. Yeah. And reading the articles and just seeing what was going on, I'm like. Oh my gosh, they literally asked for something students asked for recently too. And right. so like yeah. right. generations, like you're saying of students that have been asking for the same things and it's like, okay, it, this shouldn't be a surprise. Well documented, as you said. Yeah. Well documented. In our own records. In in our own records. <laughs> well, friends, I know we got to get going. So I want to go ahead and both thank you both for being a part of this episode of the We Got Work To Do podcast. Thanks our audience to, for listening and we'll be back again next week with another podcast episode. Until then, take care of yourselves. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.